It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles. Welcome back to another episode of Cover 2 Broncos. I am Joe Rowles, and one of the cool parts about scheduling this year is that the Broncos are opening with the Giants, which gave me an excuse to uh, have USA Today and Big Blue Views Mark Schofield back on after talking to you before the draft. I am stoked to talk to you. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation last time, so thanks for joining me. No, Joe, thanks for the invite. Um, I'm happy to be back, happy to get another chance to talk to you. Uh, Don't mind me just throwing on a little hand sanitizer here. Just, you know, I don't think I washed my hands after dinner. I know that sounds disgusting, but, you know, I'm just just trying to keep sanitized here. Uh, But I'm excited to be back here, man. Uh, Excited to talk about week one. We made it to week one. We have actual football to talk about. We don't have to suffer through the, the, the... dreariness that is june on the football twitter timeline so we have football back it's very exciting and it is i would say like this week is really weird just because like this is the week that we kind of start to really find out all the injuries like the official designations of what was happening and like for the broncos like i like 10 minutes before we got on i found out no fan actually has a knee injury because like up until this point we just knew it was a lower body so like stuff like that um and then obviously like Bradley Chubb, Broncos country already knows this, but like Bradley Chubb, like huge questions about if Bradley Chubb's going to be available. Yep. Uh, the Giants are kind of dealing with that too. The Giants have a lot of questions right now. Um, it looks like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong based on what you know, but it looks like just about everybody's going to play except for Evan Ingram. Yeah. It looks like, I mean, it was like Barkley, Thomas, uh, Galladay I know has been hurt. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a laundry list of guys. Yeah, it is. It's a, a long list right now. Um, I, I do think that, like you said, Joe, sort of Ingram's the big question mark right now. It does sort of look like he's not going to be able to go. Galladay, they started working him back. Um, you know, Ingram, uh, he did not participate in practice today. Uh, recording this on, on Wednesday. He didn't participate. Everybody else was limited participation. That includes Barkley. That includes Kyle Rudolph. That includes Andrew Thomas. That includes Kadarius Tony. It looks like those guys would be able to go or will be able to go come this weekend. The big question mark is Ingram. And, and of course, look, a lot of what the Giants like to do, at least like to do last year, was some quick game concepts, stick stuff like that to Evan Ingram. Um, they, they ran it a ton. There was a huge bugaboo amongst Giants fans that it felt like so many route concepts where they targeted Evan Ingram in the passing game. He was either static at the catch point or kind of working back to the football. Giants fans are kind of hoping that Jason Garrett and company would use him on more vertical, explosive type stuff down the field. Now, obviously, if he can't go, that goes out the window. But, you know, Ingram is a, a big question mark. You know, Thomas, they've got an issue with the left tackle spot. They, they do. That, that hasn't quite gelled the way they'd like um if thomas can go maybe he sort of figures it out um now obviously von miller but bradley chubb's availability like there are some things that they'll have to worry about it from a giant's perspective particularly if chubb does go but you know that's a concern for them right now too that left tackle spot whether that's going to hold up whether it's thomas whether they have to put nate Solder out there big question mark for the giants offense well and and again you I probably have a better idea of this than me based on the preseason. But one of the things that's interesting to me about Evan Ingram's injury is the fact that they ran a lot of 12 last year. Uh, After 11, 12 was their most utilized personnel grouping. And I want to say it was like, and again, I don't have the number right in front of me. I want to say it was hovering around like 30%. Though It was was really high, um, higher than I thought it would be. Uh, Do you think they'll still use it a lot? Or do you think they're just going to kind of push to more 11? 
No, I mean, I, I do think that even if they end up without Ingram, you'll see a decent amount of 12 because, you know, they've got Kyle Rudolph and they'll rely on Caden Smith. They'll manufacture 12 that way. Jason Garrett does like throwing out of big personnel packages yeah. off of play action. You know, like you said, you know, last year, for example, there were 12 personnel 27% of the time, 258 snaps. By and large, their second most popular personnel package, 11, you know, was their most popular. But, you know, we're seeing more teams move to 12 or 21. Deontay Lee, a pro football focus, wrote a brilliant piece recently about 12 and 21 personnel and how they're kind of interchangeable. You're seeing teams like, you know, Atlanta was, you know, I, I think they were 15% 12 personnel last year, 12% in 21. I expect that to jump. You know, Arizona actually used a lot of 12. Minnesota, of course, used a lot of 12. New England, a lot of 12, and a lot of 21, actually. Um, San Francisco, a lot of 21. You're seeing teams move in that direction. So even if Ingram can't go, I'd expect you to see a decent amount of 12 just with Kyle Rudolph and Caden Smith, who obviously aren't the dynamic, like, athletes, vertical threats that Evan Ingram can be. You know, but you watch – Caden Smith against the Patriots in their final preseason game. They used him on a vertical concept for a touchdown. And so, you know, that's something to keep in mind thinking about this Giants offense. In my years of studying Daniel Jones to this point, he seems at his most comfortable when they're running four verticals out of two by two or three by one. That's what he seems his most comfortable. Everything else is a bit of a roller coaster. And and one of the things I thought I noticed too, uh, I went and looked at this, and again, I don't have the number right in front of me, but they also ran a lot of 13. And I was thinking with the, how strong the Broncos secondary is, losing Ingram and potentially not being able to run 13 as much might be an, a thing because Garrett actually is willing to throw out of it. Um, yeah, only, I think that's, go ahead, sorry. Only two teams had more than 10% of their snaps offensively in 13 personnel. Yeah. Could you guess number one? Put you on the spot here. I, I want to say New England, but I don't know. It wasn't because they didn't have tight ends last year. Yeah. Uh, it's an AFC team that made the playoffs. The Titans. But it's probably. not Baltimore. Is it the Titans? No. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm not sure. Cleveland. Oh, wow. Okay. That Skifansky makes sense. Though. Did that a, makes sense. Skifansky did a ton of stuff out of 13 personnel. Like, if you remember their big one against the Titans, the big shot play to Donovan Peoples Jones, that was out of 13. They love to do stuff out of 13. But the only other team in double digits was, you caught it, New York Giants with 10. And, 10% and what, of their snaps. And, and, and again, 13. like, for the matchup perspective, though, like with how strong the Broncos secondary is, in my opinion, like that makes a lot of sense to go heavier, especially if you have yeah. questions about the pass protection. That said, like it's almost like it's it, it kind of is. If you have questions about pass protection, running the ball probably isn't necessarily going to help you either because it's going to put you in must pass situations if you can't effectively run block. So I mean, again, kind of like a roundabout way of like, what do you expect the Giants to do? Kind of going into this matchup to try and move the ball because I know Kenny Galladay. I want to say it was today. Said, and again, this is on Wednesday, guys. Uh, said that it might be a slow start for the Giants' offense which is kind of music to my ears, obviously. Right. I mean, in terms of what I kind of expect from the Giants offense, last year at least, and from what we've seen, you're going to see a lot of quick games, sort of what we like to call like on-schedule concepts. Um, you know, we, we could dive into that a little bit deeper, but it's some recent work that I was a part of. Nobody was more what we call on-schedule, like West Coast, short, quick game type stuff than the New York Giants last year. Um, and I, I'd expect that to continue, particularly because Giants have concerns about pass protection right now. And, and so they want to get the hand, the ball into Daniel Jones's hands, 
and out of his hands quickly. You know, they might try to do some stuff in the run game, but you're working Saquon Barkley back from an injury. How much are you going to be comfortable relying on him in week one of what's now a 17-game season? You know, there's going to be some balancing going on there too. You know, but I, I think you'll see some 12 from them. You will see some 11. I'm curious to see as somebody that kind of liked the pick – how much they get Kadarius Tony involved? Do they manufacture some touches for him? Is he kind of be going to be kind of your manufactured touch guy? Jets, you know, end arounds, design throws. Are they going to use him out of the backfield? That's something that Florida did with him last year, using some stuff where he was in the backfield, running routes out of the backfield, wheels and stuff. You know, do you does Jason Garrett manufacture some touches and opportunities for him that way as well? But I think that's what you're going to expect. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of quick game, a lot of stuff designed to get the ball out of hand, Daniel Jones's hands quickly and minimize what that offensive line has to do and try to minimize what that Denver defensive front can do. And and you you kind of alluded to this, and I was going to bug you about this next, is one of the things you did, you did a competition where you looked at route concepts that work best against different coverages. And I'm actually really curious kind of your thoughts on that, just because like, uh, and I think I shared this with you before, but I actually went, uh, the kneel down has this really, really awesome, a bunch of graphs where they break down basically different PFF data. And one of the things I noticed is the last year, Daniel Jones had a lot of problems against cover six or quarter, quarter, half. And the Broncos run a ton of it. Them and Staley basically run it more than anybody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, like, first of all, if you expect that to continue against the giants and I kind of, I kind of do, but I, again, I defer to you on this. But I'm also curious kind of like what to you kind of jumps out is like ways to kind of attack it. And also, I know the Broncos run quite a bit of cover three, and I expect them to run more cover one this year just because they actually have the manpower to do it now. And they didn't last year, and they still ran a, a bunch of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of that that too high cover six, you know, family of coverages. You know, it obviously has its roots years ago, 2018, when teams were trying to figure out what to do against Sean McVay and Jared Goff. And a lot of teams, it started with Vic Fangio when he was with the Chicago Bears at the end of that regular season. Actually, it was the week before the Detroit Lions did some of this, Matt Patricia. They were like trying to figure out, okay, they're running all this eye candy, jet sweep stuff. We're playing man. We're chasing that. And they're not even throwing to this guy. Stop running man. Play zone. Play too high. It was a lot of quarters to start. Um, ignore the eye candy, force Jared Goff to make decisions. And you saw down the stretch, you know, the Lions, Fangio when he was with the Bears, and obviously they had Brandon Staley under him. Um, and then into Super Bowl 53 with Bill Belichick, they played a ton of quarters and just said, look, we're going to ignore that. It's just eye candy. And that's why you've seen in the years since McVay find ways to get that jet player involved. He'll throw to him, throw out nups to him and things like that to say, no, 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 I'm going to make you pay attention to this again. No, but that is the sort of in vogue coverage right now. Too high, cover two. And part of it is uh, cover six, like you said. And part of it is we're going to try to force the de- the offense to run the football. You know, and I learned a ton this spring, March, when Huddle had their Huddle 21, 21 blitz. Uh, it was like a week-long clinic. Coach Vass, Chris Vassour, at Coach Vass on Twitter, who's brilliant. I absolutely love Chris. Um he hosted a defensive coordinators roundtable, guys like Kyle Kogan, uh, Cody Alexander, some other like defensive head coordinators or defensive minded head coaches at the college and, and high school level. And he asked them like what they're doing. And to a man, they all said, look, we're, we're playing too high. We're showing too high. We want you to run the football. Yep. Like, and this is the high school level. And, and you know, when I was playing high school with leather helmets and all that stuff, 
you'd, you'd never say that. Like, you'd rather the opposing quarterback drop back and throw because nobody could throw. Now everybody can throw. These kids, are, are they're playing seven on seven all the time. High school kids, they can throw the ball around. Defensive coordinators want to say, no, 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 we're going to dare you take the bait, run the football. So they're showing the two eyes, looks, all that stuff free snap. So you're seeing a lot of these cover six, cover two, cover four families. And obviously with Staley, with Fangio and what they kind of do, how Staley last season with Jalen Ramsey using him as kind of the star defender and let him do what he needs to do, still showing too high. You could still fit the run. A lot of what Staley and Fangio like to do at times is show too high, then spin it. And guys like Daniel Jones, Garoppolo, they can't read that spun safety look. They're throwing dig routes right into the teeth of a buzz defender coming down, and it's just – it's bad. So, you know, I'd expect that to continue. I, I'd expect that sort of too high four seven four six two school of defensive coverage is to be used by a lot of teams and probably more teams because teams are going to be looking at what Fangio is doing, what Staley's doing, and saying, we need to do that. We need to hop on board. It's a copycat league. We know this. And that's the, the struggle with Jones. Jones is very comfortable in my mind and my view of him when he's got that. He knows it's single high, one, three. He can look that post safety defender in the eye and move him to a seam route, to a bender, to something like that. If it's a muddy look, pre-snap and post-snap, if it's that too high look, that's where he's tended to get in trouble. So I'd expect is going to run a ton of that Sunday. And similar to the Jared Goff discussion from 2018, make him read it. Make him read it. Make up, make up his mind. Make him make a throw. And if you need more examples of how that sort of too high structure messed with Jared Goff and how this works, watch the most pivotal play of Super Bowl 53 was the late throw when Goff had Brandon Cooks open on the post route against a cover two, a too high look. They cut an underneath dig. J- Dever- Jason McCourty fills in the middle of the field late, but Goff was hesitant because he wasn't comfortable reading it. If he's decisive on that play, it's a touchdown, and we're talking about Tom Brady losing another Super Bowl. But instead, he's hesitant, doesn't pull the trigger, and the play gets broken up. And I went back and I was watching the the Rams against the Giants last year, and I thought that Jones had a lot of trouble when Staley was spinning safeties too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and then that's just it. Like, he had – I remember watching that game. He had a couple of plays where he was throwing in cuts and he threw them well with time and rhythm and anticipation. But that was where there was more static looks, yep. where he knew whether via motion or, you know, personnel, alignment, whatever, where he was pretty confident that it was this coverage and he got – that answer you know the 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 struggle for a lot of young quarterbacks from my study of them is when their pre-snap expectations are shattered post snap. yeah you know when you get either a spun safety look or you're just not reading it right where you might be unsure you know it's a static look and you think oh these corners they're they're in man technique they're manned up you know hips parallel to the line of scrimmage they're standing at the receiver and then they just flip the zone so you're expected one thing you get a different one and you don't quite fuck, don't quite figure it out. You're good. You're um, good. It's a podcast. No, I know. I, I, you know, I, I get, I get emotional talking about this stuff, man. No, what did I say? I um, but yeah, you don't quite figure it out. And, and so, you know, that's been a struggle with Jones. It's a struggle with a lot of young quarterbacks. And, and that's why, you know, you always hear like, you got to use motion. You got to use motion. Well, if you do it right and you find ways to use motion as a means of gaining information, pre-snap coverage blitzes, like, you know, not to dip away for a second, but here's the 2016 Patriots playbook right here, okay? And and there's a notation in here under one of their motions. 
This is a mechanism to try and identify the coverage and help verify pressure. Like if you've designed motions in a way where you're not just like doing it for the sake of doing it, you're doing it to identify coverage, to identify pressure. You're giving your quarterback information. And, and that's what teams need to do more of. Don't just run motion to say, look, everybody on football Twitter says we need to use more motion. So we're just going to run motion. Like have a purpose and a reason for doing it. It's the same thing with play action, right? Everybody says we need to run more play action, so let's come out in 10 personnel on third and 19 and fake a handoff. That's not doing you anything. Yeah. Now, if you come out in like 12 or 13 on second and four and you're showing the defense, hey, we're heavy, it's second and four, we're going to try to run the ball down your throat, and then you run play action, like you've got a purpose behind it. You've got a reason for doing it. You've put into the defense's mind before the play, like we're going to run the football, guys, and then you run play action. Just doing it to say you do it. That doesn't work. And I went and I looked at the numbers before we came, you know, before we came on and it looks like the giants with Garrett did not run as much motion as I expected. I want to say they were like in the bottom five of the league last year and they didn't run much play action at all. But when I went back and I had watched the Rams game and I, I want to say this was yesterday, I went back over it again. Uh, it looked like he was trying to give some of those signals to Jones. Like, honestly, when I watched that game based on again, like Twitter beats up on Garrett and a lot of it I think is deserved. But also, like, he's an NFL offensive coordinator. Like, it's not – he's not hopeless. Um, no. I, thought he, I thought he schemed up some stuff for Jones, and, like, Jones didn't read it. And, and again, yeah. a lot of that – and, again, I'm not saying Jones was hopeless either, but I think part of that was, as you, as you said, it wasn't what he expected pre-snap, and he his eyes didn't leave it. Like, he, yeah. he was stuck on his reads. You know, I, I think, to your point, like, Garrett at times did a good job last year with Daniel Jones. Jones didn't live up to his end of the bargain. Like you, you mentioned play action. Jones was one of the like passers whose completion percentage actually dropped. Yeah. What he used to play action. You know, Jones's completion percentage dropped by 4.8% using play action, you know, three touchdowns, two interceptions using play action, like yards per attempt barely jumped when using play action it was less than a yard. I mean, he wasn't successful with it. It didn't save their emotion. Like, Garrett tried at times to give him – like, believe me, I wrote, I can't tell you how many articles I wrote last year, last season about you got to use motion, you got to use motion. I wrote another one this summer about Jason Garrett. you got to use motion. Here's why. Um, but, again, you've got to have a purpose for doing it. It yeah. seemed like, for the most part, Garrett had that purpose. He's like, okay, we're sending somebody across the formation. We're going to put Saquon Barkley out into the boundary and motion him across the formation or Wayne Gallman or a running back out there so you know, okay, even before he goes in motion – a linebacker's going out with him, that's man coverage. Or a corner's over him, that's probably his own coverage. Like Garrett tried at times. Now, you know, the amount of concepts that are literally like curls, sticks, spacing, um, sticks, like there was a lot of stuff. And even in the preseason game that against New England that Jones played, it seemed like every 39 situation was we're going to run sticks. Everybody check up at the first down marker. Like, that gets sorted out. So there are things that Garrett did well last year, I think, to try to help Jones and Jones to live up to his end of the bargain. And there are also moments when Garrett, I think, could improve as a play caller. I don't know. Look, I'm just a chucklehead using hand sanitizer in his basement. I'm not an NFL offense coordinator head coach. I get it. But at least in my view of it, there are things that Garrett could do better. Definitely. And and again, I'm yeah, I'm not trying to say that was all one or the other. It's just uh... – 
again, I went into that Rams game because I'd watched it once when I first got the tape. Because again, I'm in this world where like I don't have a lot of 22. So when I first got, I went over it because I was watching the Rams game, like from the Rams perspective. And then knowing that, you know, obviously it's week one, I wanted to try and like really focus on the Giants. And it just, it, it caught my eye that Garrett was probably better than the worst things I've heard about him. Um, Cause I haven't, I, the Broncos haven't played Dallas in a while. I haven't watched a lot of Garrett's offense. I watch it on TV. I don't study it. Uh, so like, I was kind of surprised that like, I thought that they were better than I had expected, but to, to your point, when you bring up that they were running a lot of like basically spacing concepts and stuff like that, when, when the Broncos were doing that last year, to me, that was a signal that Shermer didn't have a lot of confidence in his quarterback. Do you think that that's maybe a part of it? Or do you think it's just basically just trying to get something that works? Yeah, I mean, it's Mitchell Trubisky 2.0 in my mind. Because from studying Trubisky at his time in Chicago, by the end, it seemed like Matt Nagy's answer to every problem and question was, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna run Carl Flat, married Carl Flat. Like that's it. Like whatever the coverage is, whatever the concept is, we'll run a married Carl Flat. It, it's like the same thing. Whatever the situation is, look, I know I can at least run this concept. I can just run sticks. We can run stick concept, whatever, and maybe Jones can figure that out. Now, as I said, there were times and there was a game against Washington where they ran, you know, four verts out of two by two and three by one, a couple of different occasions. And Jones read it extremely well, and I'm sitting there screaming run more of this, like let them be a more aggressive downfield. You know, I, I think there's this weird Joe push and pull between the prospect Daniel Jones and what he did at Duke yeah. and what he might be asked to do better or can do better in the NFL. Like at Duke, so much of what he did was zero and one step drop stuff, RPO, quick game, you know, all the vertical stuff was really off of quick game concepts, whether it's stick and you're hitting the outside route, slot fade, you hit the slot receiver on the go route, you know, Ohio go flat. You're hitting the go route on the two receiver concept. But as he's gotten into the NFL, it seems like he's better in more vertical downfield stuff. And so there's this like weird tension between the prospect and thinking, oh, this is the stuff we have to do for him. And maybe what he can actually do as a quarterback. Yeah. Uh, And I want to say like for those listening, probably at this point, they're probably thinking that the Broncos are just going to steamroll. And then this has kind of been the narrative kind of building over this week too, is that the Broncos are just going to roll the giants no matter what. Because there's this talent advantage. And and I got to say, like, this is the most confident I've felt in a week one matchup in a few years. Just because, first of all, this is the most confident I've been in this Broncos roster in, like, probably four or five years, too. But at the same time, like, the Giants are an NFL team. Like, and again, right. like, the fact that they're missing Bradley, like, the Broncos may be missing Bradley Chubb is kind of significant. Um, It could be, like, obviously. Yeah. Uh, What other areas, though, like... Like if the Giants win this game, what are the things that really jump out at you as kind of like what they had to do to really do it, I guess? Or what like would you do to kind of gain that edge in this matchup? Well, I mean, the Giants are going to have to hit for some big plays on offense. I mean, I think, you know, you look back at last year, week one, Steelers-Giants that Monday night, the early game. Yeah. You know, the Giants stayed in that game and had a chance to win it because they were hitting on some stuff downfield. They hit a shot play over the top on a – Mills post dig concept that I wrote that day before. Hey, Jason Garrett, funny story. I wrote that they should run that concept, and I included a diagram from a Jason Garrett playbook about this is the play that they should call. And I was coaching baseball that Sunday. I get a phone call from my editor at Big Blue View. It's like, where'd you get that diagram? Because the Giants just called me about it. And so apparently Jason Garrett's reading the stuff. So that's cool. Jason, if you're listening, yeah. You know, some shot plays, some stuff over the top, some mills, 
you know, some double post stuff, four verts, Yankee on when you run a play action. They're going to need to hit some shot plays downfield. You know, the idea that against this defense, the Giants are going to have these sustained 12, 13, 14 play drives. Like, I'm just not sure that's in the cards. And so they're going to have to take some shot plays downfield. They're going to have to take some risks downfield, try to get a big one here or there, flip field position, whatever they have to do. And I think they're going to have to force some, some mistakes from Bridgewater. Now, you know, can they force some mistakes from Bridgewater? Like, that I don't know. Like, maybe. Um, but I think Teddy understands in this offense with the weapons around him and with this defense – like if, if you've got an opportunity to push the ball downfield, great. Like like I did a video on Teddy from this preseason, and he had some opportunities to do that, and he took them. But he didn't force them just for the sake of forcing shot plays downfield. He'll be more than happy on third and five if nothing's there. I'll throw this away, let my defense come back on the field. I mean, can you break Teddy of that and force a big play on defense? I don't know. But if the Giants do that, that's one of the ways they can win this game. One of the other things too, and again, kind of going back to when you when you looked at the route concepts, this jumped out at me. Well, there's two. There was two parts of this that jumped out at me, and I kind of wanted to pick your brain on a little bit. One of the big things about like the Drew Lock versus Teddy Bridgewater narrative, and I don't want to you know dig too deep into that, but like one of the big things about it was this idea that Teddy Bridgewater is too conservative, doesn't do enough, he's boring, that kind of thing. And again, like part of it's true. Like I've I've talked to Tayseth, I've talked to. Uh, I've talked to uh, Seth Galina. I've talked, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this. Yes, like the biggest complaint about Teddy Bridgewater is probably that he doesn't go downfield enough. But at the same time, it's not that he's bad at it. But one of the things that jumped out at me when I was reading your raw concept piece is the fact that like being boring a lot of times actually kind of keeps you on schedule enough. And again, like for casual viewers, it's boring because like who wants to watch five yard passes, you know, every every single play. But if it works, it works. And the Broncos have the personnel to potentially sustain drives doing that a decent bit. Um, but the other big thing was I noticed that the Giants ran a lot of cover two and cover three last year. Uh, and again, I know that that shifted a little bit as Patrick Graham kind of adjusted to his personnel over the course of the year. Um, but in your piece, you kind of alluded to the fact that go flat and spacing are kind of like the go-to concepts to really kind of lean on. And I was surprised about spacing. And I know the way you wrote about it, it sounded like you were surprised about spacing as well. Yeah. And, and, but I think like for, for those listening, if you see it on TV, spacing is one of those concepts. that looks like the easiest throw in the world. Um, and I, and I think that's why, you know, and I, I kind of came to that conclusion. That's why spacing kind of works is because it's an easy read. It's an easy throw. You know, it's, you, you can run it a couple of different ways, but you've got three or four sort of space routes around a depth of like four yards downfield. And it was very successful against cover three because it's a soft zone coverage and, receivers can find soft spots in that underneath zone quick catch quick throw get the ball out let the receiver work after the catch um you know that's why it works uh they did surprise me that that was like so one one of the more successful route concepts that we found from the study we did you know but i do think it's interesting you know and in that study we found what we termed to be explosive route concepts these are route concepts that you know and this was all measured through epa expected points added but these are all concepts that don't always hit for positive EPA, but when they do, they hit big. And these tended to be your vertical stuff, right? Mills or Portland or Yankee. double post, Yankee with the post and the over. You know, you're going to be aggressive throwing downfield. You might not hit, but when you do, it's going to go for a big game. And then we found what we sort of termed the on schedule concepts. 
you know, these are the route concepts that like, you know, they don't hit for big plays. They don't hit for huge EPA, but they're more successful most of the time. Like stick, curl flat, like the, these West Coast route concepts that are the drive starter type of plays where it's like first and 10 of your own 20. Let's call curl flat. Let's call smash. Let's call stick. Let's call slant flat. Just get the drive going. You're not going to turn those plays into home runs but you're going to complete more of them. And so those are your two buckets of plays, right? Explosive versus on schedule. We did find that some of the NFL's best offenses had sort of a blend. You know, it was, you know, maybe 55-45 or, you know, maybe it was 60-55. And you, you, the numbers added up to more than 100% because you might have a vertical concept, an explosive concept on one side or in a – on schedule concept to the other and the quarterback's making a half field read. Oh, they're in man coverage. I've got a, a chance to take a shot play downfield. I'll, I'll hit the explosive concept or they're in soft zone cover four. I'll just take this little easy slant flat curl flat and just take what they give me. And so the percentages added up to more than hundred percent because you might see, you know, each type of concept on the same play, but the best offenses, the Rams, the chiefs, they would call a blend of the two, a balance between the two teams like the giants, they were heavily on on schedule plays. You know, they kind of struggled. And then you had a team on the other wild end of the spectrum, which you might not believe it, but last year the New England Patriots, they were the most explosive, heavy passing offense last year, partly because, and this is the way we sort of theorized it, in years past, you know, their short ball control passing game was kind of like their run game. That was kind of their on schedule stuff. They didn't need to be explosive. But last year without Tom Brady and with Cam Newton, their run game, their short ball control stuff was the run game. And if they got stopped on, you know, a, a first and 10 run, now they had to throw it and they had to try to be aggressive to do it. And so you can see how it kind of unfolded there. But, you know, the, the good offenses tend to have a blend of the two. You can't just be all explosive. You can't just be all on schedule. Like there are times when you're going to need to dial it up. There are also times you're going to say third and four, let's get the first down and move the chains and worry about the big explosive play on the next set of downs. You're somebody back when the Broncos hired Pat Shermer. I remember picking your brain about him because I know you had studied him quite a bit. Do you think he does an okay job of mixing these two? I think for the most part, I think for the most part, he did a pretty good job. Um, you know, it, you know, you're talking about a, an offensive coordinator that when well, we look what he did for Case Keenum, right? I mean, yeah. you go back that far. I mean, play action stuff, shot plays off of play action, like putting his quarterback in a position to be successful. I think he's shown over his NFL career, his coaching career, an ability to do that. And I think he did a pretty good job scheming some stuff up for Daniel Jones. But, you know, I'm, I'm very curious. I, I think we have an idea of what the Broncos offense is going to actually look like once we see it in action on the field. Um, and I think if, if what we saw in the preseason and what we kind of expect that offense to look like actually do come to fruition, I think it's going to be a, a decently called and constructed and conceived passing game. I think you're going to see some play action stuff out of 12 personnel. You know, the, the Broncos have three tight, tight, tight ends that they can rely on between Fan, between Eric Sauber, between Albert O. Like, they can go heavy at times. Obviously, you love the 11 personnel group they can run out with. I, it wouldn't shock me to see some some stuff with two running backs, whether it's you know the two running backs that they've got or whether they you know use one of the tight ends they've done at times as a sort of fullback and stuff. And so I, I'm very excited to see what this offense actually looks like kicking off Sunday. One of the, uh, I spoke with Tim Jenkins last week, um, yeah, and he had mentioned, him. and yeah, and he had, well, he had mentioned because again, like 
one of the things I've tried to like get to the bottom of like you and you're on this list too, but like Tim, Tim is one of those people that like you guys understand offense on a way, like just schematically on a way that like, I just, I know I can't grasp, like you see it in a way. And that's one of the reasons I love reading your stuff. One of the reasons I love paying attention to his stuff. And one of the things that really caught my eye when I was talking to him is he mentioned that one of the things that Shermer does that kind of goes underneath the surface for a lot of people is that he does a decent job of keeping like concepts are tied together. Like he's doing something to set something up, which is a lot. And again, like he mentioned Nagy is like the opposite of that. Nagy, a lot of his stuff is just literally like throwing shit at the wall. And hopefully something works. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then throwing married curl flat at the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so like hearing you say that, like that's, and that was one of those things that when I was listening to your YouTube video, where you're talking about Teddy Bridgewater and the concepts that you expected to see, you mentioned the 12 personnel, but you'd also mentioned a lot of the same concepts that me and Tim had mentioned. So it just, it's, it's a, again, for me as somebody who watched like kind of the train wreck of what happened last year, it's a little bit nice to know just because like, there's a lot of kind of, uh, anxiety, I guess, about that Shermer is going to be the reason that, you know, the offense falls apart. And I don't think that that I personally don't think that's the case based on what I know. Um, I yeah. think things can go wrong, but like, I don't, and I don't, I'm not saying he's a world beater any means, but I think he's a competent NFL coordinator. Yeah. I, 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 I certainly think he's a, a competent and almost say a good NFL offensive coordinator. I mean, in the years I've sort of studied what he's done, I'm a fan of what he's put together. And I am a fan of what I saw from that offense, you know, this preseason. I mean, you know, the comeback route that I did in the video to Sutton, you know, that it's not the most complex, the sort of eight, five combination, which I call that because we had a route in our playbook in college, five, eight, five, where you got five routes on the outside. You got an eight route from the tight end of the slot, that post route and Bridgewater read it to the strong side, the eight and the five against cover two. If you can hit that post route, that eight route immediately, you'll hit it. Otherwise, you're going to five to the check down. They spun it to single high. So he immediately comes off the eight, throws the five because it's the right read. That corner doesn't have safety help over the top. It's just a simple design, but it has answers for the questions that can get put in front of a quarterback. And I think that's what you have to do. I mean, I remember reading a, a Steve Spurrier playbook years ago where he had his Mills concept, which Spurrier basically invented Mills. It was named after Ernie Mills, a wide receiver at Florida, the post of the day. They threw it for touchdowns all the time. But in that playbook, it had cover two, and it had a notation for each coverage. Cover two just said, don't run it. Get out of it. Like, they don't have an answer for it. Now, I, I still think there are ways you can run it against cover two, but Spurrier didn't trust it. I, th I like when plays have, okay, if you see this, this is your answer. If you see this, this is your answer. And that simple 8-5 combination, which – you know, post route mills post, like you can do it. Um, it had an answer for all that stuff. And I, I like when play designers, when offensive coordinators put together plays that have those sort of answers. It was like the, the sort of concept that I ended the video with that weird, like space in yet flood concept. We had bunch look to the left outside guy runs a, a sort of in cut, like a spot outside guy goes out on a spot kind of concept point man of the bunch runs the corner back to the flat. So you set it up corner outbreak and spot flat route. That's your three level read. And you've also got the backside spot too. And so you've got answers for whatever they want to show. You've got answers for whatever they want to put in front of you. You've got a full field read. And on that play, Bridgewater open to the X, his spot didn't kind of like it. Then came back and throw the outside receiver coming inside through to him. But you know, if you're, 
seen a couple fours off quarters look you can just take x on the backside spot or if you get sort of single high and you like the matchup on the guy right on the corner of the seven throw that like you've got answers for anything the defense wants to put in front of you and i think schumer's ability to do that this preseason was great and i'm excited to see more of it now like you said joe the offense could still not work out like bridgewater could struggle protections could break down he could force some throws like it might not come together but the talent and I think the 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 concepts conceptually that what this offense could be, it's there, it's in place for this team to be good, for this offense to be good. Now you just got to see it. Yeah. Well, and and again, I don't. That was one of the reasons why going into it, and again, like I was surprised when I first talked to Tim about this before the before the preseason really began. That was one of the reasons why both of me and him agreed that we thought Teddy Bridgewater was probably going to come out of it with the starting job, because Shermer's offense really does rely on the quarterback to make those decisions, both pre-snap and post-snap. And and again, like this isn't Tim, this is me. That was something that, to my mind, like what I saw, that was something that Locke struggled with last year. He, and again, I, it's not even necessarily his fault. I felt like he was kind of drafted for like that Shanahan style where they kind of take the decision-making. They don't take it away from you, but they kind of simplify that and, and yeah. ask you to do more with your arm and more with your, with your talent and less like kind of between the shoulders. Whereas Bridgewater wins that way. Bridgewater wins by basically making decisions again, not to say he's going to be perfect, but that to me was kind of like when they, when they traded for him, I kind of thought he had the leg up for that reason. Yeah, and and I I think it's also a good sort of acknowledgement of your offense and finding a player that you know can run it and can be successful in it. You know, and a big you know stick in my craw is when offensive minded head coaches or offensive coordinators or whatever they basically say, "Look, I know you ran this in high school and college, whatever, but now you're here." You're a Detroit Lion now. You're going to run this, you know, and I'm just using the Lions as an example. Um, Josh McDaniels, the the system. Yeah. <laughs> right. If it were me, and again, hi, idiot, basement, hand sanitizer, we've gone over this. But if it were me, my first – we draft a young quarterback, we, we trade for a young quarterback, whatever. My, my first call after calling that player is to his college coach, not to his high school coach. What, what did he like to run? What did you call for him? If it was third and seven, he needed a big play. What did you call? And I'm getting that stuff in the playbook. I'm sitting down with this kid and I'm saying, look, what were your favorite plays in college? Like, we're going to get him in the playbook. You you look at Alex Smith when he had his huge year under Andy Reid. What did they do? They went to Utah. You know, they, they went to the Urban Meyer playbook. They pulled out the stuff that, that Smith liked to run. You know, I, I think that's what you've got to do. You know, you've got to be aware of the player – what that player does well. And it seemed like maybe in some cases there wasn't the ability to sort of get lock and this offensive playbook like meshed together the right way. You know, I, I think the the quarterbacks that get drafted and go on and have success are the ones that end up in environments that are conducive to openness about the playbook and openness about the designs. Like, you know, some of the stuff with Baker, you know, it's the fancy going to him and say, look, what did you like to run, man? I mean, Zach Wilson, that's going to be the next great example of this because they drafted him because of the offense they're going to run. I mean, the offense that Zach Wilson took off in last year, outside zone, wide zone, boot action, the sort of Stefanski, Shanahan, LaFleur tree. Now you've got a LaFleur brother as your new offensive coordinator. Like, that's why they drafted the kid. And so I, I think the more we rely on young quarterbacks to play early because of the economics of it, the more you got to invest and spend your time and energy 
figuring out what they like to run and getting it into the playbook. So, and again, I want to try and be conscious of your time, so, but I want to hit you with this one just because I know you do, you did a lot of quarterback breakdowns kind of before even anybody really cared about them. And I give you like all the credit of the world because like, that's like giving me my pre, you know, like the pre-draft preseason look into all these quarterbacks. Uh, and again, like you and I talked about this back when the Broncos were potentially chasing this 2021 class, but now that we're in the 2022 class, um, I, I am notably down on it and I know I am, and I'm not trying to be an asshole about it, but like, I just, I don't see the same talent as last year at the same time, scheme fit is almost everything. Like, and again, you just touched on it. Like if you get the guy in the right system and you're willing to bend to what he does, he might very well kind of like work out. So I want to kind of throw you a scenario, like. Let's say the Broncos have a successful year. Like make playoffs, win maybe maybe win a game in the playoffs. You know, obviously don't, you know, don't shock the world win a Super Bowl, but Teddy Bridgewater looks good enough that they look to probably keep him as like the veteran bridge, like Alex Smith. Like they, that's probably, you know, best case scenario for him unless something goes really crazy. In that scenario, if they do that and then look to draft a guy, who kind of jumps out at you as potentially like ne- not necessarily the best fit because obviously they're going to be lower in the draft if they do this but like potentially like as a draft and development kind of guy in the Shermer offense, who kind of like, is there anybody who kind of stands out to you as guys that Broncos fans should kind of keep an eye on? Um, Phil, Phil Jakovic from Boston college. Now I Jakovic is not going, he might be the Mac Jones of this class in a sense, in that he's not the super athlete you might see from a Rattler. I mean, I think Howell has some athleticism to him. You know, I, I think Malik Willis has some athleticism you know, Matt Corral has some athleticism. You know, got, those guys might come off the board earlier anyway. Jakovic is your typical, like, pocket passer. You know, I did a video on him this summer, and I basically said, get him to Tennessee. Like, Tennessee should draft him right now. Like, that's the offense, under center, play action, Yankee, Yankee variations, post over, all that stuff. Like, you know, he could run Tennessee's offense. But similar, I think there are elements of what we expect the Broncos to look like, some of their play-action stuff, some of their route concepts that Jacoby could certainly run. He had a very good game week one. Now, he did it against Colgate. He should do it against Colgate. I want to see him do it against teams like Clemson. Um, but he's somebody to keep up. In that scenario where Denver's picking in the 20s, mm-hmm. that might be the guy. Now, this – I kind of share the hesitation that has set in and wants football Twitter about this draft, this quarterback class generally. Um, Rattler was underwhelming in week one. Howell was underwhelming. Strong looked good, but he did have a pick. He's going to have to get better with his eyes. Malik Willis had a touchdown, but, you know, there's some development that needs to happen there. Maybe Macaral like, saved it uh, with his performance Monday night. But I understand after a draft cycle with five quarterbacks in the top 15 – you might not get that this year. You, you might not. But I also look, it's early. Mm-hmm. It's early. We're not even into October yet. And guys, girls. I mean, I just started drinking pumpkin spice. So I'm just saying, football season's over now. Don't so. rush me through fall. I live for fall. I love fall. I'm, I've got a nice little out in Friday to at home to get some more decorations for the outside. I'm going to be putting up the orange Halloween lights this weekend. Like, I live for fall. Don't rush me through fall. It's only September like 8th. Like it's early in the process. Lawrence didn't have, you know, 15 perfect games last year. Wilson didn't have 15 perfect games last year. There are going to be ups and downs in this class when it's all said and done. Rattler might still look fantastic. Howell might look fantastic below. If there's a guy I'm lesser on and say consensus, it's Sam Howell. But in that scenario, Joe, where Denver wins a playoff game or two and they're picking in the twenties, 
Phil Jakovic might be the guy. Good to know. It's he played Colgate. I went back and I watched the highlights of it, but that's definitely he's he's a guy I'll keep an eye on. I mean, I, you I, liked, can, your, I liked your video on him for sure. Yeah, it, that that video that I did on him, you see those you saw those concepts Saturday against Colgate. Like you saw, they have a, a Yankee variation where instead of the overall, it's a curl because they're trying to get defenses that are you know cutting that look to beat that. You know, some teams are doing that sort of blaze out where instead of an over. Atlanta did this. Doug Farrar, Touchdown Wire, actually asked Matt Ryan about a play that I clipped for him where it looks like Yankee, but that overall then spins back out. You're trying to beat the expected rotation with teams with defenses are doing to combat post over because it's such a, a popular route combination. But BC has a variation where it's curl and post over the top of it. He hit that for Pittsburgh for a touchdown. He hit it for last year, and then he hit it against Colgate. So, you know, he's intriguing, um, you know, and as everybody is – looking for the next Joe Burrow, the next Zach Wilson, the next sort of quarterback riser like Strawn, Matt Corral, and Phil Dracovic might be, you know, guys to watch in that sort of category. One last guy I want to ask you just because we're kind of like on this, uh, Desmond Ritter, uh, just because I've seen a lot of people get really high on him. Yeah. Uh, um, not Ritter's to, not interesting. Him, but just curious. Yeah, I mean, he's he's intriguing. Um, I only I didn't study his entire game from this week, but he, he looked good in what I saw. He's somebody that I thought if he came out last draft, he would have bridged that gap between the top five. And then I guess Kyle Trask who came off what was it, third round. Yeah, he would have been the guy to come off the board, start a night two. Like maybe it's pick 33, maybe it's 38, 40. Like I thought he would have fit in that. I'm relatively high-ish on him um from when I studied him prior to last year and you know, looked at him again this summer, um, you know, but again, it, it, it's early. I yeah. kind of like what I saw, but we got to see a lot more from all these kids. Definitely. Awesome. Uh, guys, again, if you do not follow Mark on Twitter, go do it. Uh, he is at Mark Schofield uh, and it is S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D, like Justin Fields uh, without the S. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You got it, buddy. Anytime. Um, yeah, I'm excited. We got a lot to talk about. I could talk about this stuff for hours. It's probably why my kids don't pay attention to me anymore, but always happy to come on, buddy. Anytime.